love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Allison Lewis-Tobes, and we're bringing you a conversation with Nakia Zavala, the Culture and Language Director for the Santa Inez Band of Chumash Indians. You'll hear about her connection to the mountains, and how the Chumash were affected by the arrival of European settlers over the last few hundred years. We'll also hear about how the Santa Inez Chumash celebrate winter solstice, giving heed to not only natural cycles, but also communal peace. It was an honor to be in conversation with Nakia, and we hope that her perspective is a gift to you on your journey of understanding your neighbors here in Santa Barbara. You're currently listening to the edited version of our conversation. If you want to hear the full conversation, including the joys and difficulties of reawakening an indigenous language, importance of representation in government, and what it means to Nakia to be indigenous, check out our extended version in the same place you found this one. I'm here today with my co-host, Allison Lewis-Tobes, and Nakia Zavala, who is the Culture and Language Director for the Santa Inez Band of Chumash Indians. She has a master's degree in cultural sustainability, and Nakia, we're incredibly honored to be in conversation with you today. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the history of the land that we call the Greater Santa Barbara area, which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years until it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We're humbled to be in conversation with a member of the Greater Chumash community today as we collectively grow towards common understanding and active compassion. Nakia, would you be willing to share your preferred pronouns, how long you've lived in Santa Inez, and what's something that you love about calling this land home? So I was born at the Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital in Santa Inez, and I was raised on my reservation, went to school here locally. And for me, living where I live in the San Inez Valley, what makes it home for me is the mountains. Mm -hmm. And we are right here in the valley. So the mountains that surround us have always been something I've looked up to and I've always seen there. And as I learned more about my culture, they became more important to me because those were sacred peaks in which our people had gone up to. And so the meaning of them, besides the visual has become more deep and and this is my home. Hmm. What makes the mountains sacred for your people? Well, before I can speak about what's sacred about the mountains, I have to say where it comes from. I am the fifth great granddaughter of Maria Salares. She's a Somala Chumash woman that lived here on the reservation and was the primary informant for John Peabody Harrington that came through this area and interviewed different Chumash people she spent a lot of time with him and recorded um, stories and genealogy, really everything that we know about being Somala Chumash people, we give to her for taking the time to work with him in her 80s. And that's where it all begins for me and how my lens has changed several times with viewing the land, not only here, but along the coast of Chumash territory and the inlands into the San Joaquin Valley. 
her stories take us to those places. It takes us back in time before or really at contact with the missions being established and how the people lived in the time before. So her uncle told her a lot of stories about what life was like for our Chumash people in the old times. With her stories and her teachings, I'm able to look at certain areas and have a better understanding or she familiarizes me to a place in where our ancestors once walked. When I look up to the mountains, as a young girl, they were just always there. The mountains were there. You can look up and, and there they are. There would be snow on them during the winter. There'd be poppies on them during the summertime and lupins and beautiful native flowers. But when she teaches us, she shows us just how much more is there. So some of these mountains here represent a place in which our ancestors had gone to, to go put up burial poles for those that have passed on, special meanings of them, and how to behave and what type of protocol to have when you go up onto the mountains. So that really changed how I interacted with some of the spaces I, I go to and how I carry myself. Can you speak more to how to behave when you're on the mountain? Sure. There's a, a mountain here called Grass Mountain. A lot of people climb up it. And our grandmother told us that when we're up on the mountain, that you're not supposed to speak loudly, that you're supposed to speak in a whisper, soft tone, and just to be aware of how you are walking up the mountain and to not be loud. So that's an example of what how she explain some of these old ways in which our people roamed around this land here. It sounds more like a, a mindful and respectful way of interacting with the natural world around us than just passing through it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you've placed yourself in a lineage of oral tradition and history and Oftentimes that doesn't really happen in, in at least I can speak to my own family. There can be a certain sense of individualism in a lot of American society where each person is their own person. And yeah, of course we have our, our family and our ancestors, but those stories don't have much bearing on our life because we can always change the course and do what we want to do. But I really, really appreciate how it, it seems incredibly important to you. And I imagine that it must, it must feel like a huge blessing to be to be part of lineage. And as a culture and, and language director for the Santa Inez Band, that sounds like a, a a big role. And I'm interested to hear what what that looks like. Sure. Yeah. Just to speak to the importance of genealogy in your family line, and we can't go back and change history or the things our people have gone through. But I encourage all people when we go talk about our culture, our Chumash culture, everyone comes from somewhere. And the importance of knowing your family and the history and the things that your family has gone through, whatever culture you come from, there's always a story to tell. And sometimes we get lost in that in these modern times of just living for today, which is important and to be to be present. But you have to look back to completely know who you are, or maybe why you behave a certain way, or maybe things affect you differently. And 
that's really important, no matter whether you're Native American or whichever, it's important to go back. And I think that's a missing piece of, of today and now. And family really tells you that. So a lot of people get fascinated and they're like, oh yeah, I, I listened to what you said and I found a great, great grandfather that was part of this movement or participated in some historical event that happened and it just didn't occur to them to look back and to, to dig a little deeper. Not that you'll find everything great, but at least you've taken the time to to get to know those people from your family. It really is the foundation of the work we do here and it's for me as a culture director we come from a people that were colonized and we have to go back to the ancestors. We have to go back and look at those stories and those teachings because we were part of several different events that were basically created to, to culturally cleanse us as Chumash people. So everything I do has to come from them. We are an evolving people. There's th- times where we create new songs and, we have to continue because we still have to be present. But with those ancestral teachings, we know that we're guided by them. And not everything that was done, we can bring completely back. That's just just how it goes. And the programs we do here are for the Somala Chumash people. So we are the San Inez Band of Chumash Indians here in San Inez, California. And the department was created about 13 years ago. And I always say to acknowledge those families that were carrying on traditions and taking the time to look and find those ancestors for those teachings, that families were were practicing culture here on the reservation prior to the department being created. That's just a time when the tribe decided to put together an official department, but that there are families here that were very much so practicing the culture did everything they can to to bring that back into their their families and that that also spread out to other families here on the reservation. So with that said, the department's always been focused on doing our best to really the word decolonization just kind of bothers me because it lends so much it gives colonization so much um, power over us. So re-indigenizing our space, re-somalifying it, we use that a lot. We really want to try to do as much as we can to teach, to live is really important, to try to live as much as we can connected to our traditional ways of life. It's hard. It's hard when you teach the youth, when you're competing with things like sports and video games and those type of things. But one thing's for sure, what you see is within the people, the pride of who they are as Chumash people. And it can be a painful journey sometimes. It's hard to know you're, you're Chumash, but you just had been so disconnected for so long and having to come back into that space. I mean, it's a journey. We were just talking about this the other day, me and the, my my cousin, Kathy Marshall, who's our lead language teacher, the patience, you must be patient with this journey to um, bring this part of your your ancestry back into your life and learning about the history and connecting to the land in a way where you're actually living off the land and the importance of gathering. And I think that in this day and time with, you can go to the grocery store and pick up food where our ancestors were out hunting and gathering. And that's kind of hard to relearn that when you're so used to everything being given to you 
or you can actually go get it. Drive down the road and you can go to the grocery store and buy everything that you need. Where we're trying to bring back gathering during certain seasons, the physical labor of gathering. I think we would be really surprised of how disconnected we all can be to, to nature and taking the time to go outside and, and really pay attention to the seasons and the weather and how it affects different things in our ecology. But my ancestors, they had that down. That was their way of life. They knew when there wasn't going to be a lot of rain, it would affect the acorns. It would affect the deer. There wouldn't be that much water and obviously affect the fish that we went out to catch. For me, the work that I do is really, that's the foundation, is trying to support our people through ancestral teachings of who we are as Chumash people and connecting to our natural world is is really the core of it. And then, of course, our language is another huge part of the work that we do. But with that said, we're challenged with the same thing. Being Chumash wasn't a novelty. It wasn't an extracurricular thing. It was just who we are. Every single day, we spoke our language. Every single year, we had our winter solstice ceremonies. This was part of our life. And now, as colonized people, we are having to go back and find the time to make sure we're implementing that in in who we are. And I have to say that with the tribes backing, we've done such a great job and the people have participated. They want it. They know that this is very important and critical for us to continue to grow and learn and re-somalify our spaces as much as, as possible. There's a social media platform called TikTok. I see a lot of people, indigenous people, who are showing up in these spaces and there's such a beautiful sense of pride through dance and pageantry and music and so much else. And there's just this bold resilience. And I see that a lot of people, a lot of non-Indigenous people look at that and say, that's beautiful. But I think few people are willing to look to the histories of what came before and what Indigenous communities have been resilient through or from. And you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation or you, you referenced some of these stories. And I wanted to offer you a, a, a space to give a bit more of an overview of what, what the Santinez Band of Shumash Indians remember from what has happened in the place that you call home, if that's something that you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, I can share what I know. There's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot of sensitivity that needs to be given to my elders but one thing I know is, is that our story is very important to us. Everybody has something in their past they don't ever want to talk about again or relive. And I think that's also really important to state because I think there's lots of discussion and uh, platforms for historical trauma, generational trauma, and those things that are really the effects of the original trauma. And it's important to move forward. So for me personally, it's important for us to acknowledge and we need to educate our, ourselves and our children. But we also need to know that for me, this is important for me, is that I want you to know the history of our people. I want you to know what we've been through. And they deserve to know the truth, but yet to pull them through it. 
I think that's important because I think the anger, there's enough anger in the world. There's enough hurt and pain. And that's not even speaking of personal trauma that people may have gone through. And then a person that has gone through trauma in her life, that it's important. The resilience is so important to your future generations of your children, your grandchildren, and to set that, set that up for speaking from a family. And then for me, for the people. So I've never been one to really hang up on the past like that, but the education system has not done a great job of reflecting the history, whether it's telling the true story of colonization, the original colonization from from the mission system, and then the different parts of history. There was a time when California was part of Mexico, and then the statehood. Each one of those three eras affected my people in one way or another. And no doubt the missionization was the most impactful because that pretty much set it up for the rest of the history that goes along with that. But as we can see how the world went, at some point a colonizer was going to come to this beautiful land and claim it for theirs. So if it wasn't them, it was going to be someone else. That's kind of like my my feeling about historical trauma. And it's my understanding from my grandmother and other historical papers that were written, or I'm sorry, I should say journals from those people that experienced that time of missionization, uh, the treatment wasn't so great for our people. And usually when I do public education presentations, I think the best way to describe it is that it wasn't a revolving door going into the mission system. It was a one-way door. You only went in, you didn't come out. And when you did come out, it was because you escaped because of the treatment and the conversion caused people to run away, too much people to run away. And other natives, there's so many missions here along the coast of California and flee to the mountains to get away. And that's when they were hunted down and brought back into the mission and were shown or treated as runaways. And were they were an example for those who ran away. This is what will happen to you. My grandmother, Maria, talks about the alcaldes, which are like soldiers. And that was one of the, like, the defenses is, well, the priest didn't mistreat them. No, but they, they gave the orders on how to handle certain things that happen. And so those were their soldiers. And those are the stories that my grandmother has on her father and her grandfather is if something went wrong, this is how they were punished. And it wasn't good. It was, it was physical physically abusive, mentally abusive, and their old ways of living were no longer there anymore. The conversion happened. My grand, our, let's see, our sixth great-grandfather, sixth, seventh great-grandfather, his name was Esteban, but they, but his Chumash name is Kilikutiyuit. So when Kilikutiyuit entered the mission, he was no longer Kilikutiyuit, he was now Esteban. So he had to get rid of his Indian name and be given this new Spanish name. And that's what he was to now be called. So it's part of that conversion. It's part of erasing their Chumash identity. They're no longer to participate in their old ceremonies. They had to learn a new way of living, which is really supporting the mission as slaves of the mission. The, the, everything, our people 
are every part of the missions. They built them. They sustained them. They were the slaves of the missions. And I mean, that should speak for itself. And that's my grandmother's words. I don't know Spanish, but she said something like, in, in, in Slave de la Misión, and it's, they were the slaves of the mission. I mean, she's saying that in 1923, or like, I'm sorry, like 1919, mm-hmm. and when she's being interviewed. So who am I to question her and argue with her in how she's describing how her father and grandfather were viewed in the mission system and the stories that they passed down. I mean, that's powerful. I think, and the story continues after secularization, Mexico comes in and we think it's a great thing. You no longer have to live here. You can leave the mission. You're no longer slaves. You're not being kept here anymore. And now you're free to go. After years of being under the mission, in the missions and I wouldn't say maybe all their traditional ways of life were gone. Some of it was there, but it was a different time. We were no longer using our, our traditional Chumash money. Our villages have all collapsed through the missionization of the people. So our very intricate and very, like every villages, were, the trade system was just very much intact. But the falling of one village affected the other villages around them so it's really important to know that because you would think oh well the Chumash people they knew how to live off the land they went right back to their land they could do it yeah but we all relied upon each other our trade system and so how it goes is the people came here and lived here what is now the Saninas Chumash reservation and I'm sure other people went and went to go work for the ranches because there was a lot of ranches now in the area and they came here to live on the reservation. And during that Mexican time, the Mexican, when Mexican government was here, it was a lawless time. And it was a dangerous time for the people. And then the statehood comes, right? The first governor of California, and I don't believe his portrait is no longer hanging in the state capitol because he was very well known for his treatment for Indian people in California, bounties, and so on on all California Indians. And then from there, once you're a statehood, so many different federal policies that affected our people, boarding schools. My grandmother went to a boarding school and actually ran away. There's a lot to say about that policy that was put in place. Another big cultural cleansing, taking children out of families' homes and putting them into these boarding schools to continue to colonize the people and pretty much erase the Indian. You know, and it goes on and on. What makes us unique as Native people is the fact that we are Native American and the first people of the land, but we're also uniquely targeted when it comes to these type of policies that were put in place. For the food Reservations were given commodities, so these are rations of food given out to families and probably mark the beginning of things like diabetes and heart disease, and it's all flour, sugar, powdered eggs, 
and things like that. I mean, don't get me wrong. When we would get it, my sisters would always make fun of me because I would go for the canned peaches first. So I kind of hoard the peaches <laughs> with the government issued food. I mean, we made the best out of it. It fed us. I'm um, the number four child of six. So it fed, it fed us, but it really does contribute to health issues throughout Indian country. And some tribes still get commodities today. And, and then we have something great like Indian Gaming that came along. And I say that because it provides funding for our programs and, and has allowed us to really live this American dream that was created by the, by the Americans, by the government. This is the American dream to get ahead and own a home and have all these things. And now it supports our tribal programs. And I'm able to do these things that are considered a luxury, which is having programs like we do. Uh, most tribes have to apply for grant funding and their programs last the distance or the length of the funding. But once the funding's gone, they're back to square one. And then sometimes you have these speakers and teachers that have to leave working this job and go back and find a full-time job doing something else because there's not adequate funding for their programs because the grant ended. So, and usually it's federal, federal funding that we get to support these programs. There's just not enough money. There's not enough money to help bring back the language and cultural programs that we need to be able to offer. And really it's because, again, we're being Chumash was something our ancestors did every day. This is, we all have to work. Like I said, I worked at the casino. I had a management job. I did other work that had nothing to do with bringing back language and culture, but it paid my bills. It helped provide for my family. And that's important. What do you want non-Indigenous people who live in Santa Barbara to know about where they live? I think it's important for them to know who the first people were and are. So meaning the first people, the ancestors, how they lived, how they connected to the land, how we viewed the stars, that they can look all around them and everything they, they could, they could switch their lens too to look at it through how the Chumash people lived. That's all I really would ask is just, just get to know who the people were here in the beginning and the islands. There's so much to tell and appreciate. And then to show gratitude. I think that's really important. I think in this day and age, when being a modern day Indian isn't just about even just language and culture, but we have our leadership that fight for our rights. We have so it's it's there's so many there's so many other other parts of being Chumash that we want people to acknowledge. So me, I speak for the language and culture, and but then we have leadership that fight for our rights, our land rights, and things like that. So I think if People know who we are, know our history, know what we've been through. Because how do you understand the resilience piece if you don't know what we've gone through? And how do you understand why there are certain things we're sensitive about if you don't understand or have an idea of what our culture was even about? Yeah, it's interesting. We sometimes had gotten a lot of judgment on our names. Oh, what, how are they Chumash when they have Spanish names? Well, that's just a huge red flag going, well, you really don't know the history of California. You really don't understand how emissionization impacted our people. 
or why my grandmother spoke Spanish to 1919. So I just take the time to learn, take the time to appreciate and have, have an understanding of, of who we are. That goes a long way. So that's educate yourself. And everything else should make more sense, <laughs> especially when it comes to sometimes it's political. There's political things we're having to deal with. And there's people that just have no idea at all. And we also can thank our education system for not teaching about really how unique Native American people are and how we fit within the government and the different policies that affected us and why why certain things are the way they are. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a, a gift to have to have your voice today. And the woman that I was fishing for her name earlier, her name is Deb Holland. And she is a member of the House of Representatives from New Mexico. And yeah, just to see the voices of indigenous peoples at every level. When we look at other groups, we, we obviously know at this point that that it's important to have women representation at every level, in, in every system, in every level of government. And I have hope that we're starting to see a push towards representation of indigenous people in governments, and that that's just a first step towards towards equity, towards justice. That's by no means where it stops. <laughs> but it, it's hopeful to me, at least, to see people in the Maori government and in our, in our own government as well. Was there a, a tradition or practice within your community that you'd like to show about that maybe most people in Santa Barbara wouldn't know about? Well, I'm not sure if most people wouldn't know about, but the most predominant one to speak to wouldn't be just even Chumash specific, but many cultures have winter solstice ceremonies or acknowledge winter solstice. And then others acknowledge summer solstice, but I'll speak specifically to winter. That is definitely our most important ceremony that we have. And it makes sense when I read the old notes and what we experience today with droughts and how important it was for my ancestors to pray for rain during our solstice ceremonies. And traditionally, that's what the ancestors did. When I work within the notes, I'm always looking at how we live together. What were the different practices to have peace within our villages? And what I really, really like about winter solstice ceremony is that it was a time and where people forgave. And it was it's genius. It's like, yeah, it's like every year, if I did something, Kenny, to you, and I, I don't know, took your tule boat out to the river, and I didn't ask, and you got really upset with me, or I did something that I wasn't supposed to, to speak in traditional times for winter solstice, and let's say we weren't talking, right? I did something wrong to you. I would go to you and ask for forgiveness, and I would gift you something and saying, hey, Kenny, sorry, I did that. I want to make things good. We're going to start the new year out in a good way and not harboring that anger. And I really like that about winter solstice ceremony. And and I think it really speaks to just living in, in a good way and with a good heart and to have peace. Um, not saying it would be easy for everybody or everybody did it, but that was something that they believed in. So when we do our winter solstice um, gathering ceremony, I really like that part about the ceremony. And then I also really like praying for rain 
asking creator to give us more rain because we already experienced droughts here. We didn't have Kachuma Lake then, right? We didn't have anywhere that water was just being held. We either had water or you didn't. And when you didn't have water, well, that's when people would die. That's the droughts would be here. The elders were the first ones to go because they're more fragile than the other people. So that's what I really would like to emphasize is that would be the one gathering ceremony that a lot of people throughout the world acknowledge. And that was the most important, not just for setting as Chumash, but all Chumash people and tribes along the coastline and inland. I love that. That's not only an acknowledgement of natural seasons, but that it has a very important interpersonal human element. And even thinking about winter is the time when goods are most scarce, I would imagine, and the time when the people need to band together more than ever. So it makes sense that that would be a time where people would ask for forgiveness to say, we can't hold on to these grudges. We have to work together. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that tradition. Sure. Would you be willing to offer us a blessing to end our time together as our listeners go into whatever they're doing next? If you would be willing to offer a good word for all of us who call this greater Santa Barbara area home. Great creator, we thank you for this day. I ask for you to lead us all on a good path. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I was really humbled by Nakia's willingness to share about both the harrowing past of her community and the joy with which they seek to recover and integrate older ways of being in connection with the earth and with each other. Next week, we'll have a conversation with Father Pedro Lopez, who's the pastor of Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish. Please subscribe to our podcast to see our latest episodes each week and share it with your local communities. And always feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com.